wasn't a literary classic, and she told me I had to read it, and I wasn't going to. So it came time for the class to start discussing the book, and one of the other students in the class, not me, said, I, I have trouble reading this book. It's hard to read. And she was a new teacher. She was a tad bit gullible. So she decided the best course of action would be, rather than forcing us to read the book as seniors in high school, that the best course of action would be to start playing the book on tape for us to follow along in class. Like, that doesn't sound awful to any of you. This book's already no good. I don't want to have someone else read it to me, too. So we're reading the book one day, and she's getting observed because it's her first year as a teacher. And I can only imagine what's going through the, the professor's head who's observing this person as a teacher who's having seniors in, in, seniors in high school have a book read to them on tape. And I'll never forget this moment. This is the only part of the book that I remember. I know nothing about what it means or who Ned is, but I remember the line where the narrator of the book says, Now, Ned was built like a side of beef. And the teacher paused it because she's being observed and she has to make sure that she does this right. She pauses the book and she says, now, what was Ned built like? And the class is deathly quiet because no one's paying attention. And I raised my hand and I said, are they trying to say he's a fat cow? And she didn't think that was very funny. <laughs> And it was this moment where I started to think again about stories and how important stories are. And I started to think back on all of the stories that I've read. And as we enter into week two of At The Movies, we're looking at some of our favorite movies that you can find on Netflix and the movies that can teach us something. And so today we picked To Kill a Mockingbird because there are so many lessons within to kill a mockingbird, that you have to just dive in for yourself and see what it is you can learn. As a, as a sophomore in high school, I, I picked up on most of them, but now, 18 years later, I still see lessons in that book. It's funny, I, I love reading, um, but I don't actually really like movies. That's probably a weird thing to admit. Like, I have a lot of friends who quote the famous Jim Gaffigan line that when they make a book, a movie about a book, and somebody will always say, well, the book is much better. And Jim Gaffigan's reply is, yeah, you know what I liked about the movie? No reading. I watched the movie for two hours and went home and took a nap. Like, that's all I had to do. But, but I'm one of those guys who I'd rather read a book than watch a movie. It just doesn't, I just, movies don't always do it for me most of the time. But the movie To Kill a Mockingbird is one of those good movies that captures the story in, in, in its essence and on the whole. And I love the story of To Kill a Mockingbird because it takes place in 1933 in an imaginary town in the South, but the story of To Kill a Mockingbird is still a true story in our lives. And the story is told by a girl named Scout. And Scout has an older brother named Jim, and her dad Atticus is an attorney. And Jim and, Jim and Scout live through these adventures of a typical Southern kid in the summer kind of thing, and they get into all sorts of mischief. But the, the two main plots of the story are, are the two lessons that teach us really on, on the base level the same thing. You see, the first main plot in the story is that Jim and Scout's dad, Atticus, gets assigned as a public defender the case of Tom Robinson. Tom Robinson was a black man in, in this imaginary southern town, and it was there in Maycomb that that Tom Robinson is accused of rape by a girl named Mayella Yule. 
And the entire town's in an uproar because Mayella Yule is white and Tom Robinson is black. And Tom Robinson is automatically presumed guilty by most everyone. And, and Mayella Yule is played as this innocent person who never did anything wrong. And there's this story of Atticus uncovering the heart of Tom Robinson. And there's this story of the exposition of Mayella Yule and the entire Yule family and how things aren't what they always seem on the surface. And when you go through high school and when you read this like with a, a literary critic's heart, you see that the story is a criticism of racism and it's a, and it's a, and it's a takedown of the Deep South and what happens there, what happened there and how wrong racism is. But, but when you dig a little deeper, you see more to the story because you see the secondary plot, which is this weird relationship that Jem and Scout have with this man named Boo Radley. We don't see, if you watch the movie, you don't see Boo Radley till almost the very last scene of the movie. But from the beginning of the story, they start talking about Boo. They don't really know how old he is. They don't really know what's wrong with him. They don't really know a lot about him, except he lives at his parents' house, and it's there that he's kind of a recluse. And it's there that he's kind of off by himself, stays to himself. Nobody talks to him. Only people talk about him. But there's the story of Boo because he lives not that far away from Scout and Jim. And he starts leaving presents for Scout and Jim. He starts, he starts giving them gifts, and he starts finding ways to show them that maybe I'm not as scary as everyone else thinks. But the rest of the town is still scared to death of Boo Radley. But by the end of the story, two things are sure. Number one, Tom Robinson is innocent of the charges. But number two... Boo Radley was wildly misunderstood by everyone around him. And there's this, there's this shift in the, in the minds of every single person understanding that maybe, maybe we don't need to make a judgment by what we think things look like. But maybe our perception of how things look has clouded the truth of how things really are. If you read the, the, the book, you see there's this, this plot line where Mayella Yule says, I've never kissed a man. Well, that's just saying that what my daddy does doesn't count. Because the truth of Tom and Mayella Yule, or the truth of Bob and Mayella Yule, excuse me, is that he's been abusing his daughter for years. But no one worries about that because Bob's a white man and they're not going to fight him. You see, as you dig further into the heart of, of the Yule family, you find out that they get the benefit of the doubt because of how they look, but they're the family that has the mess. The truth of the story of Mayella Yule is that Tom Robinson came into her house because she asked him to help her with a favor. And while he was in the house there, she forced herself on him and tried to kiss him. Her dad saw it through the window, and she lied about what was happening. But no one cared about the truth. They just cared about the issue of how things looked in the black versus white. And the, the, the whole movie is just an incredible telling of this story. But I want to share with you just this, this, this short clip from Atticus's final defense of, of Tom Robinson for you to understand the heart behind what's going on and the heart of, of what we're trying to talk about today. So check out this clip from To Kill a Mockingbird. 
is something that in all of society is missing. She kissed the flag. Not an old country. But a strong, young, Negro man. A cold married to her before she took it. But it came crashing down on her afterwards. You see, the story of To Kill a Mockingbird is the story of understanding that how things look, how a person appears, says nothing about what's in their heart. Because maybe for you, you say, you know what, race means nothing to me. I don't see race. But I wonder if somebody came in and looked disheveled and hadn't, hadn't bathed in a while, what would be your first assumption? If you saw someone with, with needle marks down their arm, what would be your first assumption? If you heard someone speaking a language other than the one you know, what, what would be your first thoughts? If you knew of someone who has a different religion, if you knew of someone who was from a different country, how do you view that person? And it's a hard question to ask yourself because for us, it's a hard thing to get our minds around. But this kind of issue isn't just a personal issue. This is an issue that, that God deals with regularly. You see, for as long as there have been people, there have been people who, who judge others based on appearances. 
And for as long as there have been people trying to follow God, there have been people who have tried to make it look perfect, but their heart was anything but. It's the, it's the way life goes, it's the way life is, that there are always people who will try to make it about rules and religion and appearances, and there are always people who will try to make it this external thing, but God makes it clear over and over again that His issue is not how we look, His issue is not what we do, His main concern is the condition of our heart. He makes it clear in the story of David, if you were here the last couple of weeks, you've heard over and over again the story of David, the, the man, who, the boy who kills Goliath. But even before he becomes the giant killer, David, David teaches us a valuable lesson in 1 Samuel chapter 16. If you want to turn in, in your Bible there, that's where we're going to be to, to read this story. This is kind of our, our introduction to David. You see, the the nation of Israel is struggling. The king they have, Saul, is not the king that God intended. So God tells a man named Samuel, he says, go and you are going to anoint a new king. And Samuel says, where am I going? And Samuel is told, you're going to the house of Jesse. And he says, it's there at the house of Jesse that you will anoint the next king. And so we see in 1 Samuel chapter 16, verse 6, that when they arrived, Samuel saw Eliab and thought, surely the Lord's anointed stands here. Eliab was tall, he was strong. As the oldest of Jesse's sons, no doubt was he the best looking. I hope my brother never watches this because he'll have heard that line the wrong way. Sometimes the second son is much better looking. But Eliab, undoubtedly, as the oldest son, was the favorite. Eliab, as the oldest son, was the one with the most favor from his dad, was the one who had the best clothes, was the one who had the best care. Eliab, as the oldest, was the favorite. And so as he stood before Samuel, Samuel saw this tall, strong guy, and he thought, this is it. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not consider his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. The Lord does not look at the things people look at. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. And this proves that the older brother has a wicked heart. I'm just kidding. I guess he's all right. Then Jesse called Abinadab and had him stand in front of Samuel. And Samuel said, the Lord has not chosen this one either. So number two, he has to go. Jesse then has Shema pass by. But Samuel said, no, the Lord hasn't chosen this one. And he passes by. And Jesse has seven of his sons pass before Samuel. And Samuel says to him, the Lord hasn't chosen these. And Jesse's stumped. Samuel walked into his house and said, one of your sons is about to be anointed by the Lord but none of, the, none of the first seven passed muster. So Samuel asked Jesse, are these all the sons you have? And you have to hear this. You have to hear when, when you read this, the disdain in Jesse's voice, because the youngest son is going to be the one who eh, we're not that interested in. The youngest son is the one who gets the worst jobs, who gets the worst hand-me-downs, who gets the worst amount of the favor because he's the youngest, he's the last, he's typically the runt. And so Jesse says, well, there's still the youngest, but he's tending the sheep. He's doing the worst job, he's living the worst life out of any of the eight, and Jesse says, surely that's not the one you want. But Samuel says, send for him. 
we will not sit down until he arrives. And so he sent for David and had him brought in. He was glowing with health and had a fine appearance and handsome features. Then the Lord said, rise and anoint him. He is the one. And David becomes David, the one who slays Goliath, the one who who leads the army of thousands, the one who becomes king. In fact, later in Scripture, David is described as a man after God's own heart. David is upheld for us thousands of years later as a hero, as the one that God desired, as the one who was after God's own heart. But catch this, David kills Goliath. But David also has an affair with a married woman who becomes pregnant. And David has her husband killed to cover up the affair. David's a hero. David becomes king. But David's family is a mess. The story of his kids and the story of his children, you wouldn't even believe some of the things that happen in the story of David. But how does God describe David later in Scripture? As a man after God's own heart. From the appearance of things, from the way things look, it doesn't look that way. But God looks past what we see and sees his heart. You see, following Jesus is really about our heart. We're people, we're humans, we make mistakes, we create messes, we fall into messes, bad things happen. But God isn't interested in what our, what our appearance is. God isn't interested in how we act when people are looking. God's not interested in how many times we show up to church, even though we don't care one bit about the reason that we're here. God is after our heart. Because appearances mean nothing to the man who knows our every thought in our every feeling. God is after our heart. When I think about this this verse, I always think about um, one of the most interesting political stories of the last hundred hundred years or so. And it's when the first time Richard Nixon ran for president, he ran against John F. Kennedy. And Kennedy was the young, up-and-coming politician. Nixon was the one who'd been around. Nixon was the one people knew. This is before Watergate, before he was president, all of this. And the interesting thing that happened is it was the first televised presidential debate. And everyone who watched on television would tell you that Kennedy ran, Kennedy won going away. Because Nixon's makeup job wasn't very good, because Nixon was sweating and looked uncomfortable on the stage, and Kennedy had the poise and charisma that we know of Jack Kennedy. But everyone who listened to the debate on radio told you that Nixon won because they didn't see the appearance. They just heard the heart behind the words. And this isn't a political statement for either one, but it's it's a reminder that so often we let appearance be the one that makes the decision when what goes deeper is what matters much more. If you want to know about David's heart, all you need to know is that he's anointed by Samuel the prophet. He and his brothers don't know what it means. Samuel doesn't make it clear that he's becoming king, but he's anointed by an important man with oil on his head. And here's what you need to know about David. Do you know where David goes after he's anointed? 
after this ceremony, and he's picked over his seven brothers, David goes back out to the sheep to keep doing the job that he was given. This is why we can say with confidence that we believe when Scripture tells us David's a man after God's own heart. His heart is focused on serving. His heart is focused on others. His heart isn't focused on himself. There are mistakes and there are missteps, but overall, the story of David is the story of a man whose heart is focused on something bigger. And this is the story of Boo Radley and Tom Robinson. Both of them are, are men who, who are misconstrued, who are misunderstood. And both of them are men who just genuinely want to help people. Tom Robinson only has one arm that works. The other was paralyzed in an accident. But every day, Mayella Yule asks Tom for help. And every day, Tom comes in and does whatever she needs after a long day at work. Not because he wants to take advantage of her, because he wants to help her. Because he's a servant. We don't find out anything about Boo Radley until late in the book and then late in the movie when Bob Yule is trying to attack Scout and Jim because their dad defended Tom Robinson. And Boo risks his own life to save Scout and Jim. Because he's a servant. Because his heart isn't focused on Boo, his heart is focused on other people. You see, this is, this is what happens when our heart is focused on others. When our heart is focused not on ourself, when our heart is focused not on who we are, when our heart is focused on things that are bigger and more important than us, we start seeing past the appearances that we get so caught up in. And yes, the story of To Kill a Mockingbird is a lot about race, but really the story of, of our heart is about more than race. It's about socioeconomic class. It's about it's about nation of origin. It's about language we speak. It's about who we are as people. It's about how we view the people who are different than us. It's about how we think about people who don't look, act, or think like us. But I want to make this clear, that in the kingdom of God, in the followers of Jesus, there is no race. Paul says this in Galatians chapter 3. He says, there is neither Jew nor Gentile nor slave nor free. There is neither male nor female. We are all one in Christ Jesus. The kingdom of God is about far more than black and white, than English or Spanish. The kingdom of God is about everyone. One of my favorite lines that I've heard in the past few weeks came from one of my favorite preachers who said, heaven is going to be hell for a racist heart. Because in heaven, there will be people from every tribe and tongue. In heaven, there will be people who look and act and think nothing like you and I. But that's the beauty of heaven, is that Jesus died not just for us, not just for you and me, not just for Americans in the 21st century. Jesus died for everyone. And so when we are worried about our heart, when we are worried about the heart of others, we see past appearance, we see past name, we see past their, their, their outlook, we see past the things they've done, and we see their heart because their heart 
is what matters to God. They make it as clear in John chapter 3, verse 16, when it says, For God so loved the world. For God so loved the United States, for God so loved Canada, for God so loved Portugal, for God so loved Senegal, for God so loved Kenya, for God so loved Australians, for God so loved Native Americans, for God so loved the people of India, for God so loved the people of Mexico and Guatemala, for God so loved the people of Vietnam and North Korea that he gave his one and only son, that whoever regardless of their race, regardless of their, of their ethnicity, regardless of the language they speak, that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. For God did not come to the world to condemn South Africa. For God did not come to the world to condemn Russia. For God did not come to the world to condemn the United States. God did not come to the world to condemn France. God did not come to the world to condemn England. God did not come to the world to to condemn Mongolia, but to save the world through him. Because regardless of your race, regardless of your origin, Regardless of what you have done, God came to save you. God came to save the ones whose hearts are focused on Him. God came to save the ones who say, you know what, I've fallen short. You know what, I've made mistakes. You know what, I've done some bad things. But I believe that God came to save me. And God came to save the ones who, who say, you know what, I, I, I know you're from somewhere different. I know you look different. I know you act different. I know you think different. But God came to save you. And he sent his son to save us by dying on the cross for you and for me. And he sent his son to save our lives so that in the moment when we realize that our heart is in the right place, but our actions don't always line up with our heart, right? That's how that happens to you. It happens to me that, that we want to follow Jesus and we want to be like what he wants, but there are times when we don't get it right. Those are the times when we're reminded that Jesus saved That Jesus saved us from the death that we are owed, from the death that we were destined towards. Even though we can't get it right, even though we desperately want to, Jesus saved us. And that's why every week we stop and we take the bread and remember his body broken for us. And we take the cup and we remember his blood poured out for us. And we say, Jesus saved me even when I didn't get it right. Not because of how I look, not because of how I act, but because he came to save my heart, which was destined for him.